Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's not easy to unpick all the causes of death in mortality statistics, but our data team has dug into the numbers to figure out how deadly Britain's recent heat wave was. The troubling answer is a grim indication of what's to come in Britain and elsewhere. And policymakers have long argued about social capital, meaning essentially relationships between people who aren't family, friends, or colleagues. A new study suggests just how important those relationships are for upward social mobility. First up, though. Leaders from America, Germany, France, and Britain have called for an end to military operations around a key Russian-occupied nuclear power plant in southeastern Ukraine. The Zaporizhia facility was taken over by Russia early in the invasion, but it's continued to operate despite intense fighting close by, raising fears of an accident. Russia's President Vladimir Putin agreed at the weekend to allow UN inspectors to visit the site. His Ukrainian counterpart, Vladimir Zelensky, welcomed the development, but described the ongoing situation as Russian radiation blackmail. The details of that inspection visit have yet to be worked out, and shelling has continued around the plant, sharpening concern that a crisis could become a catastrophe. The Zaporizhia power plant is Europe's biggest nuclear power station. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. It was built under the Soviet period. It has six reactors and it gives Ukraine about a fifth of its energy, or at least it did, because it's been in Russian hands since the spring. And there is increasing concern that situation at the plant is getting worse. In recent days, the United Nations, Ukrainian officials, other world leaders have all called for a solution to avoid what they call a worst-case scenario at the plant. And do you say that this has been something of a concern since spring, since the Russian occupation began? What's been going on there since then? Well, Russia captured the plant in March and it sent in operatives from Rosatom, which is Russia's state nuclear energy agency, They kept the Ukrainian employees at the plant to run it. They were essentially hostages. They were reported to be exhausted, to have been threatened, working in very poor conditions. I think at least one has been shot. And what was also happening is that the whole plant was being used as a kind of nuclear shield, if you will. Russia had stationed artillery at the power station, and it was firing on Ukrainian positions in two cities on the opposite shore of the Dnipro River. And this was obviously in some ways, a cunning tactic because Ukraine could not fire back. In recent days, there have been renewed reports of Russian shelling in the area around the plant. The Russians say that Ukraine is doing it, but that seems 
very unlikely to me. And there's pretty clear evidence that they have used parts of the plant complex to keep weapons. So they've effectively turned a nuclear power plant into a military base. And so why is it a particular focus of attention now? The reason this is in the news now is because Thursday last week, there was a sort of war of words. The Russian defense ministry claimed publicly that the Ukrainian military was preparing what it called a terrorist attack on the plant. The Ukrainian military intelligence agency said no, the Russian warning was itself a pretext for Russia to stage what it called a provocation of some kind. And those jitters were compounded by the fact that on Friday, the Rosatom officials, the Russian employees, they hurriedly left the site, leaving just the Ukrainian operational staff with access to the plant. So that was suspicious. And previously, Russian commanders had already signaled their intention to shut down the reactors, supposedly as a precaution against Ukrainian shelling. And what are the implications here if there is some kind of provocation on the part of either side? What are the dangers? Most people think of the danger as being some kind of Chernobyl-style meltdown, maybe something smashing into the plant. I'm not sure that's the biggest risk in this case. This site has a big containment dome above it, which gives you a little bit of protection. I think the much bigger issue is that, first of all, the spent fuel that's been used in the reactor and that is very hot still, that needs cooling systems. That needs to stay cool. Those cooling systems need power supplies, as does the plant. And if that power supply is cut off because the reactors aren't working, then you need diesel generators and those need an assured supply of fuel. Now, two out of the four power lines into and out of the plant have already been destroyed. If those generators get taken out by shelling, at some stage, the plant would be at risk of releasing radioactive emissions. I think the other big risk is the people actually running it, because you can't just shut down a nuclear power plant and then walk away. There are 10,000 or so workers at the plant. They're trained for all kinds of situations. But if Russia abandons them or if Russia threatens them and they, they feel they have to leave then this plant is an incredibly complex system. It wasn't designed to be used as a military base in an active war zone. It wasn't designed to be abandoned in an active war zone. And do we know what the situation is after that war of words last week? Well, there's no provocation, which is good news. Uh, And what we saw on Friday later on was Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, and Emmanuel Macron, his French counterpart, uh, had a phone call. And in that, they seemed to agree on the need for a visit to Zaporizhia by inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the UN body that scrutinizes nuclear power issues. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned Russia, said it has to end military activity around the plant. The Secretary General of the IAEA, Rafael Grossi, said he would be willing to visit personally. But there are still details left to be worked out, according to the Ukrainian side. And I think there's still a sense of tension around who would be organizing the visit. Would it be the Russians in occupation of the plant? Or would it be the Ukrainians, who ultimately it's their land, it's their plant? But what's clear is that a lot of world leaders are worried about this. And we saw statements from France, from Germany, from the UK in the last few days about Zaporizhia. But right now, uh, we don't know whether Putin will actually follow through on this promise of a visit. So why do you think it's come to this, though? As, as you say, it was being used perfectly well as this nuclear shield by Russia. Why this sense of escalation? It's not entirely clear, but I don't think the plant's value was just as a nuclear shield. Ukraine's energy company says that Russian troops may be planning to cut the plant off from the lines that feed power into the Ukrainian energy system, and that the Kremlin is basically engineering a crisis so that it can switch the power station from the Ukrainian grid to the Russian grid. We've certainly heard Russian politicians say that they intend either to make Ukraine pay for the electricity or simply to steal it, to take it and send it back to Russia. So that 
could be part of the justification here as well. And I think there's also a sense that uh, Russia is getting a battering in some ways. Ukrainian rockets have been striking Crimea repeatedly in recent weeks. Ukraine's Independence Day is coming up on Wednesday. Wednesday is also the six-month anniversary of the Russian invasion. I think there are real concerns that Russia may be looking for ways to demonstrate the success of its intervention, to make some kind of dramatic gesture. And I think Zaporizhia is one place where people are concerned they may seek to do just that. But the the war of words seems to have been cooling. There are these talks about a visit from the IAEA and and the like. Is that enough to avoid the the worst case scenario here that, that people are worried about? I don't think so, Jason. It's great that the IAEA is visiting. They will see what Russia is doing. But at the end of the day, Russia can move military vehicles. It can stop firing from near the plant. And although the IAEA may seek to talk to Ukrainian plant operators, imagine that you're one of these operators and you are given 10 minutes with a UN official, but then you have to go back to living under Russian occupation, to living with your Russian supervisor, to living with the Russian troops, patrolling the corridor and living billeted in your village. Are you going to be entirely honest about the problems you faced? Are you going to be entirely frank and candid about the Russian administration of this plant? I'm not sure you really can be. Russia is in occupation of this plant, and as long as that is the case, we're going to see these risks persist. Shishong, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jason. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Scorching weather across Europe this summer has been making all kinds of headlines. Soaring temperatures are still hitting most of Europe. There are wildfires in Portugal and Spain. In the past hour or so, we've had the UK Met Office issuing its first ever red warning for extreme heat. Britain hit highs above 40 degrees Celsius, that's 104 Fahrenheit, for the first time in July. Our record temperature so far was 38.7 degrees a couple of years ago. We're going to exceed that. So it's an unprecedented event. Wishing for more warm weather is a perennial activity for Britons, but increasingly, it's much too much of a good thing. In the final two weeks of July, England and Wales saw quite a large increase in the number of excess deaths. James Francham is a data journalist for The Economist. So the number of people who died compared with what might normally be expected was 16% higher. That amounts to an additional 3,000 deaths. A similar pattern of mortality has been observed in other parts of Europe, too. And how many of those excess deaths do you think we can pin on the heat wave? Do we know the heat wave is causing this? Yeah, it's a tricky question to answer, Jason. When people die, if the heat has been a factor in their death, it's unusual for medical professionals to state on the death certificate that heat was an effect. What we do know is that heat exacerbates underlying conditions that lead to death. So think of heart disease or strokes, anything that kind of exacerbates respiratory diseases. If it's really warm, 
either outside or inside your home, those underlying conditions are likely to bring forward death. And medical professionals call this a harvesting effect. So what we do observe is that when the temperature increases, the number of deaths tends to increase too. And then subsequent to a heat wave, you see a decline in excess deaths as those number of deaths have been brought forward. What we observed in 2019 was exactly that. So you saw the day of the hot weather, there was a spike in deaths, and then subsequent to that, there was a decline. And is the connection between heat and excess deaths particularly acute in Britain? What is it about Britain that makes it susceptible? Yeah, there's a few problems with Britain that make it particularly vulnerable to rising temperatures. The first one is just 2% of homes are reckoned to have air conditioning. Many homes are not designed for kind of really excessive temperatures too. This is a problem particularly in flats which have been retrofitted in order to improve their thermal efficiency. They have both poor ventilation and they're very exposed to the sun. There's reports that in some flat conversions in London, the temperatures when it's 38 degrees outside can get to about 50 degrees inside those apartments. So you can imagine the real effect that that has on the human body, particularly for the elderly and infirm that have pre-existing illnesses. In all the times we've talked about excess deaths over the past couple of years, it's always been in the context of COVID-19. How do we parse these data from the effects of the pandemic? Yeah, that is a really tricky question to answer. But what we do know is that that deaths from COVID-19 aren't particularly high at the moment. They are a little bit higher than they were the same time last year. But they don't explain that 16% excess that I talked about. So they account for perhaps an additional 800 deaths in the two weeks. All the evidence suggests that the heat is having an effect. And this wouldn't be unusual, of course, because in Europe in 2003, there was a massive heat wave there. And we know that that led to 70,000 deaths across the continent. So it's what the data would suggest, but it may be too soon to know definitively what the answer is. And another recurrent theme on the show, of course, is the relentless march of climate change. One presumes however bad these numbers are, they're only going to get worse. That's right. Each year, Britain's Health Security Agency puts out a heat mortality monitoring report. And the number of deaths that it thought occurred from heat waves between 2016 and 2019 was perhaps around 1,000 a year. But in the past years, 2020, 2021, heat waves have been associated with 2,000 deaths. Suggests that that's a doubling in quite a short space of time. What I would say also that nine in 10 of those deaths among people aged over 65. So that just shows you the effect that the heat has on the elderly. What will happen in the future? We don't know for sure, but the Climate Change Committee, an independent body scrutinising the British government's climate policies, it thinks that annual hot weather deaths will increase from around 2000 now to about 7,000 by the middle of the century. So unfortunately, heat deaths may well become more common unless we adapt better. And as you say, it's hard to parse these deaths out of the numbers. Is that something that will improve? Is this seen as an important area of inquiry? I think it's important to understand what the effect of heat is. And then by doing that, by learning how large these numbers are and where we expect them to go, we can then decide how best and how much we want to invest in mitigation, in adaptation. Should British households all adopt air conditioning units, for example, which then, of course, would have a really terrible negative feedback effect on the amount of energy use and therefore exacerbating the effects of climate change. So there's some decisions that both individually, but also from a policy point of view that we've got to make. And data helps inform those kind of cost benefit analyses that we have to do. 
And clearly that increasing threat of heat waves is something that countries around the world are going to have to deal with. Yeah, in many ways, Jason, Britain is actually one of the lucky countries. If you go to bits of the Indian subcontinent, for example, the temperatures there are just unbearable for human life. Elsewhere in Europe has experienced a very severe heat wave and drought this year, as has much of the United States too. And of course, as we observe in Britain, when the mercury rises, heat deaths do too, we would expect to see the same elsewhere in the world. James, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure, Jason. Friendships are important to social mobility. Just how important has long been the subject of debate in social sciences. In Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam made perhaps the most notable case for the value of social capital in American society. He outlined his thesis in a talk at Harvard University in 1995, shortly after he wrote the essay that formed the basis of his book. Social capital, dense networks of civic engagement, explain not only why some places are better governed than others, but also why some places have had more economic success than others. That landmark study argued that civic life was experiencing a steady erosion. Volunteering for the Red Cross is off by 50, 50%. Volunteering for the Boy Scouts, adult volunteers for the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts are off. It's not only do-gooding organizations, however, that are off, and that's why I use this really crazy title, Bowling Alone. Mr. Putnam argued that the withdrawal of Americans from religious life, volunteering, and bowling leagues was a symptom of a major breakdown of social bonds. He believed it would adversely affect not just the lives of individuals, but also American democracy itself. Two decades later, the problems Mr. Putnam highlighted are as relevant as ever. And yet his theory is still considered just that, a theory. But a new set of studies published in Nature shed some intriguing light on the subject. This new study was produced by a large team of researchers that included Raj Chetty, who's a leading economist from Harvard University. What they did is they got access to proprietary data from Facebook on over 72 million American young adults and the 21 billion friendships that they have on the website. Daniela Raz is a data journalist for The Economist. The scope of the data allowed for a much more fine-grained analysis than previously possible. And what they found suggests that social capital is really important to life outcomes. So what exactly did the researchers do with all this data from Facebook? So they converted every person's network of friends into a few simple empirical scores of social capital. They had data on hometowns, workplaces, and educational histories of all these Facebook users. And that allowed the researchers to estimate how social capital varies between places. But most importantly, they were able to correlate these measures of social capital with certain outcomes like graduating successfully from high school and having upward social mobility. So in other words, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, well, what the researchers found is that what seems to matter most for life outcomes is what they call economic connectedness. And this is simply the extent that people are friends with people from different socioeconomic classes. So more economic connectedness was strongly associated with greater rates of high school completion, less teenage pregnancy, and increased income for those born poorer. And they found that going from a place where friendships across these social and income groups are relatively uncommon 
one where it's relatively standard, translated to a roughly 8% increase in future earnings. These findings aren't necessarily surprising in the sense that they do corroborate other findings that have shown that places in America that are more segregated by race or income or have more concentrated poverty give poor kids less of a chance. Does the study provide any suggestions for how to counteract this phenomenon? Crafting any sort of policy that would encourage cross-class friendships is a bit difficult. The researchers decomposed this broader concept of economic connectedness into two subcomponents. One was exposure, and the other was friending bias. And exposure is just the extent to which people are exposed to those of different social classes. And friending bias is the rate at which wealthier and poor people actually befriend each other, conditional on how much exposure they have to each other. So, for instance, in universities and colleges, poor individuals are more likely to be surrounded by predominantly wealthy peers. But the benefits of this are not necessarily reaped because there's a strong friending bias in the setting. In universities, cross-class friendships form at a rate lower than you would expect. And then if you look at religious settings, cross-class friendships are actually a bit more likely to form than you would expect given the share of wealthy and poor people in that setting. So clearly there's a lot of potential to form these important friendships in universities, but it isn't happening as much as we'd expect. And so that is perhaps one area for intervention. What about social capital built up through links and bonds created within one social class rather than across classes? There's definitely more to social capital than economic connectedness. There's also participating in community life, volunteering, social cohesion. But when the researchers looked at the correlation between, say, civic engagement and life outcomes, they didn't really find a significant correlation. So that could mean that the theory of social capital itself needs some refinement, But it could also mean that the available data from Facebook is not actually measuring civic engagement or reflecting these other forms of social capital. It's always been very difficult theory to verify because you can't really experimentally vary a person's degree of social capital. But whatever shortcomings there might be or limitations there might be with this study, the imperative for integration seems to have grown stronger still. Daniela, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.